I heard a story recently that has stuck with me. I haven't been able to get it out of my head. It's about a boy who grew up in Scotland. And he was maybe 12 or 13 at the time. And in the time and place where he grew up, there were no travel sports teams. There, were no, there was no Netflix. There were no iPhones. In his own words, there was nothing to do. So what happens when you get together a group of 12 to 13-year-old boys who are bored and who are unsupervised? Well, you might guess trouble happens. <laughs> Our story's main character wasn't the ringleader of his friends, but he accompanied his friends on their various escapades. There came another boring and unsupervised evening, and this night's entertainment was throwing rocks and bricks into the windows of abandoned buildings. Now, the group rallied and recruited each boy to join in on the mischief, and they came to persuade our main character, but he turned them down. The excuse he gave them was, I I can't do this because of my dad. Oh, his friends scoffed. They made fun of him. What, are are you scared of what your dad's going to do to you? No, he said. If I do this, I'm scared of what I'll do to my dad. I'm not sure if I've ever heard a better story that that more encapsulates what the right and proper fear of the Lord is. It's not a fear that stems from the terror of the Lord. It stems from the love and grace of the Lord. It's not a trembling at the prospect of being crushed by God, but a trembling at the prospect of being far from God. It's not a cold, distant relationship of duty. It's a warm, close relationship of delight. There is no one who embodies the proper fear of the Lord like Jesus Christ. Isaiah 11 verse 3 prophesies of the Messiah saying that his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. And our passage, John 7, 1 to 24, displays that. Jesus shows up in Jerusalem and shows us again that he lives the life that you and I were intended to live but didn't live a life of a proper fear of God. A heart whose deepest motive, whose most constraining principle was to please and to honor God. This heart is on full display in John 7. But the heart that is its exact opposite is on full display as well. So follow along as I read. After I finish reading, I'll say, this is God's word. If you agree, would you join with me to say, thanks be to God. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. 
About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. For any passage you read from the four gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, if you're struggling to know how to read them, you can just answer two questions. Who does this passage tell me about who Jesus is and how should I respond to him? Who is Jesus and how should I respond to him? We'll see the answers to those questions even here in our passage as we'll go through the three different scenes corresponding to the three different paragraphs of John 7, 1 to 24. As we go through these scenes, we'll see that the people's response to Jesus shows that they are completely unlike Jesus. The people's deepest desire, their most constraining principle is not the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of man. And so if we could sum up the main takeaway of John 7, 1 to 24, we can do it like this. Pressure from the world doesn't sway Jesus to reject the Father's plan. But pressure from the world does sway the people to reject the Father's Son. Let's start with scene one, Jesus and his brothers, verses one to nine. Now, Jesus is dealing with his family. I just thought, how fitting is it to have this passage of the weekend after Thanksgiving? If you are still recovering from passive-aggressive comments from your Aunt Dolores or punchy political comments from your Uncle Lester or pugnacious grandstanding from your cousin Tyler, well, my friend, take heart. Jesus also knows what it's like to have problems with his family. Even more seriously, Jesus knows what it's like to stand alone in his family. Even here, we can quote Hebrews 4, verse 15, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, before we look closely at this scene, let's bring ourselves up to speed. Remind ourselves what's been happening in John, what's going on here at the beginning of chapter 7. Now, per usual, for a new scene, John tips us off to the setting where everything's taking place. So chapter 7, verse 1, John tells us that Jesus is still in Galilee. This is the northern part of Israel. It's, in, it's really the villages surrounding the Sea of Galilee. And earlier this year, Jesus was in Jerusalem. He was likely there for the Passover feast. This was back in chapter 5. Then he went to Galilee. He started on one side of the sea. This is where he fed the 5,000. And then he went to the other side of the sea to a town called Capernaum. This had become more or less his home base for ministry. Most of the back and forth dialogue we've been looking at from John 6 
happens in the synagogue in Capernaum. But now Jesus says he's staying in Galilee. He does not want to go south to the region of Judea and its capital of Jerusalem. Why? Well, because the Jews, likely the religious authorities, were seeking to kill him. Now, for all of the recent high points of the Gospel of John, whether it's the healing of the paralyzed man at Bethesda or whether it's the feeding of the 5,000, for all those high points, this dark undercurrent pops up time and again. We saw it last in chapter 5, verse 18, where it says the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Now, we'll see that Jesus doesn't avoid Judea because he's scared of dying. Jesus avoids it for now because he submits to his father's timing. Now, speaking of timing, it was time here for another feast, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast happened around September or October. It marked the end of the harvest. It was known for its water gathering and lamp lighting ceremonies, which we'll see more of in the coming weeks. Now, during this week-long Feast of Booths, Israel went camping. It wasn't just to enjoy the great outdoors. It was to remind themselves that God sustained them in the wilderness after he delivered them from Egypt. He sustained them even when they had no land and even when they lived in tents. So it's at this time and place around the Feast of the Tabernacles in the place of Galilee that Jesus' brothers sit him down for a talk. These are likely the other sons that Mary had. And you think about it, these are the guys who ate, who slept, who played, who went to synagogue with Jesus growing up. Now, if we just look at their exchange from 30,000 feet, it's pretty straightforward. His brothers want Jesus to go to Jerusalem, do this big miracle. Jesus says, no. (laughs) Seems pretty simple. Maybe we could just move on. Well, not so quickly. Let's descend in altitude and take a closer look at Jesus' brothers. Now, when we remember what has just come before this in the Gospel of John, Jesus' brothers sort of act like Jesus' image consultants. They're Jesus' public relations firm. What's just happened in the Gospel of John? Chapter 6, verse 66, just put your eyes up there a little bit. It says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, with this in mind, we might imagine how his brothers might have approached Jesus. Maybe they said something like, hey, big brother, your brand is down. <laughs> if you're supposed to be this worldwide Messiah, well, then you have, to re- you have to do something to recapture the hearts of the masses. You need to go to the people and here's your chance. They'll all be in Jerusalem. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, baby. Now, we get statements that evaluate Jesus' brothers. You look again at verse 5. It says, not even his brothers believed in him. Verse 6, Jesus evaluates them. He tells them, your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. So between the brothers' response to Jesus and these statements that evaluate the brothers, I think we can take away a couple of lessons about what it means to believe and follow Jesus. First lesson about what it means to believe and follow Jesus from his brothers. Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee and is not the same as belief in Jesus. I'll repeat it. Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee and is not the same 
as belief in Jesus. We saw that just last week with Judas at the end of chapter 6. We see it again here. Jesus' earthly brothers lived with him for nearly 30 years, and they did not believe. They are not lacking information. They lack transformation. They are exhibit A of what Jesus said back in chapter 6, verse 63. The flesh is no help at all. You can live with Jesus face to face for 30 years and not believe. Proximity to Jesus does not equal belief in Jesus. Now, this got me thinking about kids who grow up in church. So maybe kids in the room, I'll I'll talk to you directly here. Your family has brought you to church. They've brought you to hear God's word preached and taught. They brought you to remember what God has done for us in the gospel of Jesus. They brought you to be with God's people. Now, for a lot of you, they've, they've done that your whole life. And that is a big gift to you, even if you might not know it. But I want you to be careful that you might start to think that just because you've shown up at church for a long time, then that automatically means that you and God are good, that you are at peace. Well, I want you to remember Jesus' brothers, that being physically near Jesus, or even being physically near Jesus' people, is not the same thing as believing in Jesus for yourself. We want you to make your faith in Jesus your own, not just your parents. So uh, what do the brothers teach us about believing in and following Jesus? Second lesson, craving the world's love and approval doesn't mesh with a belief in the real Jesus. Craving the world's love and approval doesn't mesh with a belief in the real Jesus. Jesus' brothers think that this big showy miracle will capture the hearts of the people. Well, guess what? Jesus has already done that. He fed some 20,000 people from a plate of food. But then what happened? The people who ate just followed Jesus, not for Jesus himself, but for the stuff that Jesus could give them. Jesus says that the world cannot hate his brothers. Well, that must mean that his brothers are part of the world. His brothers share the world's priorities and agenda. His brothers crave the world's love and approval. And that's what they want for Jesus. They want Jesus to have the world's love and approval. But his brothers don't understand. What people need isn't the world's love and approval. They need God's love and approval. And if that's going to happen, we need more than just a showy miracle. If that's going to happen, we need the cross. That's the father's plan. The brothers don't get it. That's why Jesus says your time is always here. They aren't subject to God's plan and to God's priorities. They're subject to the world's plan and priorities. So let me just bring this home to what this means for you and me. This means that if you want the world to like you, then Jesus won't make sense to you. If what you want most from this world is for life to be comfortable, Well, I hate to tell you that following the real Jesus won't be possible. Listen to what Jesus will say later in John chapter 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. 
A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. To believe in Jesus is to shift your priorities. It's to say, I no longer need the world's love and approval because I have God's love and approval. And I have that secured, not because of me, but because of what Christ did for me in my place. Lived, died, rose again, ascended to the Father, lives forever to intercede for me. From this scene with his brothers, not only do we get a closer look at the brothers themselves and what it means to believe and follow Jesus, we get a closer look at who Jesus is. This scene shows us why Jesus is misunderstood and opposed. Shows us why Jesus is misunderstood and opposed. Jesus says in verse 7, The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. I read one, one old pastor saying about this verse that the people could have tolerated Jesus' opinions if he had only spared their sins. Let's face it, you and I don't like being told that we're sinful. It's a very churchy, sounds stuffy kind of word. We like being told that we're just fine. Well, the good news isn't good news unless there is bad news. And the bad news that we are sinful, that message has created opposition for followers of Christ ever since. I think of John the Baptist. Herod killed John the Baptist, not just because John called Herod to turn to Jesus. No, but for Herod to turn to Jesus, John told Herod, you must also turn away from your sin. I think about Paul going to the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. The Ephesians threw Paul in prison, not just because Paul called them to turn to Jesus, But for the Ephesians to turn to Jesus, Paul told them, you guys have to turn away from the false gods you're worshiping. Jesus says, your works are evil and you must turn from them in order to turn to him. This is what we call repentance. Now, if you hear this and think about all the things that you'll lose when you turn to Jesus, I'll lose habits that I like. I'll lose a certain lifestyle. I'll even lose certain friends who are bad influence on me. Well, friend, I would say it's good to think about that because Jesus tells you to count the cost. But I will also tell you that it's only half the story. That the other half of the story is that the one you will gain will far overshadow everything you will lose. Philippians 3, verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, from this scene with his brothers, we see a little bit about who Jesus is. We get a closer look at why Jesus is misunderstood and opposed, but also we see what is Jesus's priority. We see Jesus's priority. Jesus tells his brothers in verse eight, he says, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. This verse could also be translated. I am not yet going up to this feast. Meaning Jesus will not go according to his brother's way and his brother's timing. If Jesus did it their way, it would be out of a fear of people, meaning it would be out of this unhealthy desire to please people. If he did it their way, this would be his main priority. The brothers want to see Jesus make this triumphal entry to Jerusalem. But Jesus knows that's not the plan right now. Jesus will go to Jerusalem, not according to his brother's way, but according to his father's way. 
He will go on his timing. Jesus has a healthy fear of his father. His main priority is to please him. So friends, let's bring this home to you and me. Let's ask the Lord to strengthen us so that this is our priority as well. That we would not live according to the whims of the world, but that our main priority would not be first to please people, but first to please God. This brings us to the next scene, which begins in verse 10. Jesus goes to the feast in Jerusalem. Now, again, if you didn't read this carefully, you'd be really confused because Jesus just told his brothers, I'm not going to the feast. And then he goes to the feast. (laughs) And later on in verse 18, he can say with a straight face that he has no falsehood. Well, again, I think it's likely because he tells his brothers he is not yet going to the feast. He doesn't reject going there outright. He rejects going there on their terms. So it says he goes privately, not publicly. Jesus's priority wasn't necessarily privacy alone. His priority was pleasing his father. Now, why don't we start this scene with what it shows us about Jesus? Okay, who is Jesus according to verses 10 to 13? Well, this priority to please his father shows us that Jesus is humble. It shows us Jesus's humility. Jesus is willing to set aside privileges, set aside the honor that is rightfully his. And he comes to a place where he should receive worship, but instead he receives rejection and mocking. Even accusations that he is demon-possessed. But this gloriously humble plan to set aside what he deserves is ultimately so that he can bear on the cross what we deserve. And brothers and sisters, let me bring this home to you. Let this humility of Christ, as Philippians 2 says, also be in you. To set aside the privileges and the honor that you think that you deserve for the sake of the good of others. Not always to have to get your way. Not always have to assert your preferences. To be willing to take one for the team, for the good of others. I wonder how that would affect your marriage. I wonder how that would affect your walk as a church member. The people in Jerusalem during the feast, well, they don't know this plan, but still Jesus is the talk of the town. The authorities are searching for Jesus in verse 11, and it's probably not because they want an autographed sandal and a selfie. (laughs) They want to kill Jesus. Now, the rest of the people, meanwhile, they mutter. They whisper their opinions about Jesus. And no one can be too loud because it says they're afraid of the authorities. Now, again, the people's response to Jesus shows us what it means to follow Jesus. And I think we can get two more lessons. First, to follow the true Jesus, you need God's word, not just your opinion. To follow the true Jesus, you need God's word, not just your opinion. Now, look at what the people said. Some people said, Jesus is a good man. Others said, he is leading the people astray. Now, I wonder for you, when it comes to Jesus, do you start with, this is what I think of him? Or do you start with, this is what the Bible says about him? Friends, you could apply that to almost any area of life. Do you start with, this is what I think, or this is what the Bible says? In all these mutterings from the people, there is no considering what Jesus has actually said about himself. No considering whether what he has said about himself is aligned with God's word. If you start with what you think about Jesus rather than what Jesus says about himself, well, then, my friend, you'll end up believing lies about Jesus, not the truth about him. 
That's how it's worked since the beginning. It's how it worked in the Garden of Eden. The serpent got Adam and Eve to start with what he said about God, not with what God said about himself. And it was believing a lie about God that led them to sin against God. Getting Jesus right and looking at what he says is vital. And lies about God might even appear respectful. We see that here. Just a few minutes ago, we said that proximity to Jesus doesn't equal belief in Jesus. Well, this opinion that Jesus is a good man tells us also politeness about Jesus doesn't equal belief in Jesus. Politeness about Jesus does not equal belief in Jesus. Is this opinion that Jesus is leading people astray, yeah, it might be a little bit more brash than the opinion that Jesus is a good man, but neither are the truth. Friends, we must start with and study and steep in God's words because knowing God and how he has revealed himself through his son matters. It is vital. Even here, you and I need more than just a good man. We need one who is truly God and truly man. We need one who can genuinely stand in our place to represent us. We also need one who can bear the full weight of our sin. You won't know this about Jesus if you start with your own opinion. Well, the people's response to Jesus at the feast gives us another lesson about what it means to follow Jesus. Lesson two, to follow Jesus, you must fear God more than you fear people. To follow Jesus, you must fear God more than you fear people. Verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now for them to speak openly about Jesus might have gotten them kicked out of the synagogue. That would have ostracized them from their community, probably ostracized them from their family as well. For them, it would probably mean you would sever most, if not all of the relationships that you had if you spoke openly about Jesus. And as opposition to Jesus increased, speaking, speaking openly about him probably would get them arrested. And if they persisted, it might even get them killed. You know, these same risks still exist around the world today to speak openly about Jesus. But I want to bring it home to you and me. What is the risk for you to speak openly about Jesus? Maybe you think of your friend or family member who's been on your heart for a long time and you might, who you know does not trust in Christ and you hesitate to speak to them about Christ. What is the risk of speaking openly about Jesus to that person? Well, maybe the risk is that you would get uncomfortably personal with that person. Maybe the risk is that to speak openly of Jesus to them would risk serious disagreement and pushback from them. Maybe the risk would be tension in a relationship, or even if it's a person at work, it would be pressure from a boss. Now, yes, we need wisdom and discernment to know when and how it is best to speak about Jesus. But here's the bottom line. Followers of Jesus speak about Jesus. One who we say we love should be on our lips. Matthew 10, verse 33, it's a haunting verse. Jesus says, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. The people of John 7, verse 13, are a long way from Jesus's followers in Acts 5, verse 29. When the authorities charged Peter and John no longer to speak of Jesus openly, what did Peter and John say? We must obey God rather than man. To follow Jesus means to fear God more than we fear people. We overcome fear of people with fear of God.
What that looks like is that we have been convinced that God is more glorious, God is more important, and that there is no greater treasure than him. People could not measure up. What that looks like is God remains big and people are small. Hebrews 13 puts it like this. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, the people don't know what to think about Jesus. So in verse 14, Jesus steps into the temple and speaks for himself. Jesus might have gone to the feast secretly, but unlike the people, Jesus is not afraid to speak openly. This is our third scene, Jesus in the temple. Now the people we see go from muttering to marveling. They hear Jesus teach and they're blown away. In my mind, this is a true goodwill hunting moment. If you've seen the movie, they witness someone who is wicked smart, but didn't go to Harvard. At other times, people marvel at Jesus because he talks as one who has authority. The teachers of the day would constantly appeal to longstanding traditions. Here, Jesus just appeals to his father. And just like he's told them before, if they really knew the father, then they would recognize the family resemblance in him. Jesus tells them that they claim to know God and they claim to uphold his law, but they are the ones who are trying to kill him. A clear violation of the law. So when we, let's, let's look at this scene. We'll go back and forth between looking at Jesus and looking at the people. When we look at Jesus, we see Jesus is the God glorifier. That's who he is. He is the God glorifier. Verse 16, he talks about the source of his teaching is his father. The prophets of the Old Testament, they could quote God saying, and, and they were famous for saying, thus says the Lord But when Jesus teaches, Jesus does not merely quote what the Father says. Jesus is so united to the Father that when Jesus speaks, it's the same as if the Father was speaking. Jesus is famous not for saying, thus says the Lord, but truly, truly, I say to you. He is the God glorifier. We see that in the source of his teaching. We see that as well as in the goal of his teaching. Verse 18 He says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. The goal of his teaching. I've heard it said that one way you can tell false teaching is by asking who benefits from it. Who benefits from it? Who benefits from this teaching and from this ministry? Does Does this teaching make it all about me, the listener, Does it make it all about one personality and one brand? Or does it make it all about God and Christ? If Jesus wanted only to make a name for himself, well, then he would have went along with the brother's plan. But Jesus' deepest motive, his most constraining principle, is to live to please God. He is the God glorifier. But then when we look at the people, we see that they are self-glorifiers. Why can't they recognize Jesus for who he really is? Well, Jesus says in verse 17, they can't recognize him because they don't do God's will. They do their own will. They make the same mistakes that that his brothers made. They think that following Jesus is just a matter of receiving enough information. Information will get them nowhere unless there is transformation. So what they needed to learn, what we need to know as well, is that you won't follow Jesus if you are too busy asserting your own will. You won't follow Jesus if you are too busy championing your own wisdom and your own morality. You won't follow Jesus if you are too busy sticking to your own way. 
That's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 9 that to follow him first means to deny yourself. No longer to stand on your own authority, no longer to stand on your own morality, no longer to stand on your own wisdom because you know that it falls short. If you don't do that, you won't come to Jesus. If you don't do that, then your deepest motive, your most constraining principle is not to live to please God, but to live to please yourself. Well, let's stick with the people because Jesus turns the tables on them, starting in verse 19. When we look at the people again, we see that they are lawbreakers. They are lawbreakers. Verse 19, Jesus tells them, none of you keep the law. It's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? And what's his evidence? Well, they're trying to kill him. Now, you may have never gone to church or cracked open the Bible, but if you had to give a top 10 list of the things that you shouldn't do that God, that God says, I bet you could come up with don't kill somebody. And what's the first thing people blurt out when they claim they're a good person? I've never killed anybody. But the people claim innocence at this charge, and when they do that, they actually add to the charges. Because now, not only are they trying to kill the Son of God, they are saying that the Son of God is demon-possessed. So Jesus explains the origin story of their plot to murder him. It goes back a few months earlier, the last time he was in Jerusalem in John 5. When he came into the city last, he was at a place called Bethesda. There he met a man who was paralyzed for 38 years, and Jesus spoke, and he healed him. The man then carried his bed and went home. Now, it wouldn't be a big deal unless it was the Sabbath day, the day of rest. The religious authorities added extra parameters to make sure people didn't do anything on the Sabbath. Now, one of those extra parameters is that people couldn't carry things from one place to another. So the religious authorities see this man carrying his mattress, and instead of rejoicing over his healing, they are upset that their traditions are violated. A flawed understanding of God's word. Now, you might listen to this and what these people are like and wonder, what does this have to do with me? Look again at Jesus' assessment of them in verse 19. None of you keeps the law. I'll be honest with yourself. Can't Jesus say the same thing to you as he said to them? Think back to the law in question. Jesus says they are trying to kill him. You might think you get off scot-free with that, but Jesus would disagree with you in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus showed the true intention of that law, thou shalt not kill. We assume it's a low standard, but Jesus reminds us that it's actually a high one. It extends beyond just our actions and extends to our hearts. As many have understood that behind every negative prohibition is a positive command that's implied. So when the law says you shouldn't murder, what's implied is that you should actually radically love people. Who among us then has actually kept the law and not broken its true intention? The point is that you can't and you won't follow Jesus unless you have confessed that you too are a lawbreaker. That you have went your way instead of his. It makes sense that if you are going to run to Jesus, you'll need first to see you've actually run far away from him. Now, if the people are the lawbreakers, then the last thing we'll see about Jesus is that he is the law fulfiller. Jesus is the law fulfiller. Jesus talks about when they got upset with him about healing a man on the Sabbath. And Jesus does this all the time, but he uses an argument from the lesser to the greater. 
Even before Moses, Jesus says, God instructed Abraham to circumcise his son on the eighth day after he was born. And even when the eighth day fell on the Sabbath, they would still perform the circumcision and it wouldn't violate the Sabbath law of resting. Now, Jesus says this law of circumcision, which was seen to perfect one part of the body, takes precedence over the Sabbath. That's the lesser, the greater. How much more then should Jesus's action of perfecting the whole body take precedence over the Sabbath? So if if the people could just set aside their priorities, if they could set aside their ways and their opinions and their fears, if they could set aside their desire to please people and their desire to please themselves, well, then they could see who it is who's actually in front of them and glorify God. If they didn't just judge by appearances, they would see that Jesus is actually the law fulfiller, not the law breaker. Circumcision was meant to remind them that they don't just need one part of their body renewed. They need their entire being, body and soul to be renewed. And here is the one right in front of them who would do that. The Sabbath was meant to remind them that God would one day make a way for them to have peace and rest in him. Here is the one right in front of them who the Bible calls is our peace, who has reconciled us to God through the cross, killing the hostility that existed between us and God. What's left for us, friend, is to open our eyes and see Jesus rightly. Jesus fulfilled and kept the law where we violated and broke it. He bore the curse of the law that we deserve so that we can receive the blessing from the law that he deserves. When you take hold of this Jesus, you see that he surpasses anything that the world can give you. When you take hold of this Jesus, your relationship with God turns from judge to father, from cold to warm, from unhealthy fear of dread to a healthy fear of delight. I'll close with the words from William Cooper, hymn writer. He says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into a choice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, open our eyes so that we may see you not according to our own opinion, but according to your word. And in doing that, Lord, we see that there is none like you, that you are glorious, glorious in your humility, glorious in your obedience and your holiness, glorious in your love and your sacrifice, glorious in your love for the Father, where we need your help to follow you. We need your help not to desire the approval of people, but to desire God more. We need your help, Lord, to persevere. We need your help, and we want to give you all the glory. So we pray in your name. Amen.